We are doing a sermon series on the life of Elijah. Elijah was a prophet during the greatest crisis of Israel, during the reign of Ahab, who was the most wicked king. He was the worst of the worst. The text literally says he did more evil than any other king before him. And um, rather than giving us a laundry list of his atrocities and uh, his depravity, the Bible actually gives us one vivid example of his evil, which we're going to look at today. And, you know, sometimes, maybe more oftentimes, it's more effective to give uh, one detailed case study than a long list. I think that's the case today. And so let's read our text. This is First Kings chapter 21. It's a long text, but it's full of drama and interest. I'll read to you, starting in verse 1. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel, beside the palace of Ahab king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it, or, if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen, because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him, for he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast, and set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against them, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she, she had sent to them, they proclaimed the fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Then... 
the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, The dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone, and anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth on his flesh, and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. This is the word of God. So I have three points. We're going to look at, first of all, this... uh, this atrocity, this anatomy of evil. Secondly, we're going to look at God's justice in the story and God's mercy. And then finally, we're going to look at the ultimate innocent sufferer. So let's begin. The anatomy of evil. So the story begins with a man named Naboth who has a vineyard in Jezreel. And his great misfortune is that his vineyard is right next to the palace of Ahab. And one day, Ahab looks down on this vineyard, his eyes filled with desire, he wants this piece of land, and he wants to turn it into a vegetable garden. And so he makes Naboth an offer, and the terms of the offer are actually quite generous. He says, I will give you an even better vineyard, or I will pay you, just name your price. Now, Naboth's response is very important. In, um, this is, in fact, the only time he speaks in the entire story. And in verse 3, he says, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Now, when he says, the Lord forbid, um, it has it sounds like one of those old-timey expressions, right? Like, heavens forbid. Um, it has this sort of, like, annoying, pious sound to it. That's not what's going on. Naboth means this, quite literally. He's saying God has forbidden it. So what does he mean? Well, in the Old Testament, the land of Israel was evenly distributed among the people of Israel. 
and each family was to hold on to their plot of land in perpetuity. The law said that they were not to sell it, they were to never relinquish it, because the land was their connection to God and to the covenants of Israel. And so Naboth rightly says, I cannot sell you this land. Ahab, you know this. God has forbidden it. Now, I want you to appreciate the courage that's required. Because the easiest thing to do is for Naboth to sell the land, to give Naboth or exchange it for another piece of land, right? This is the king of Israel. You don't say no to the king. And if Naboth plays his cards right, he can use this to his advantage. He can gain other privileges. It's not a bad thing to have the favor of the king. But Naboth says no. And the Bible here is giving us a portrait of godliness. He's giving us a portrait of this faithful man who is keeping God's word no matter the cost. And as you will see, it will cost him his life. So what happens next is that Ahab goes home. He sucks his thumb. He refuses to eat. He basically acts like a crybaby. And this portrait of Ahab is really interesting, uh, his character. Here is somebody who wants, who desires evil things, but he doesn't have the stomach to actually grab it. And you can almost see his wife, uh, Queen Jezebel, her disdain, her disgust for the weakness of her husband. And in verse 7 she says, Do you now govern Israel? Meaning, are you the king? Or are you a mouse, right? She says, step aside, I will get you the land, just sit back and relax. Now, it's interesting to me that um, Jezebel doesn't tell Ahab exactly what she's going to do. Why not? Because she knows that Ahab would be uncomfortable with this plan, that he himself would never explicitly order someone's murder. It's too cold-blooded. And so they have this interesting arrangement, right, where Ahab pretends not to know, and Jezebel pretends to act alone. But it's this partnership of mutual deception with devastating consequences. So Jezebel then comes up with this really elaborate plot to have Naboth legally killed. Now, why go through all this trouble? Wouldn't it be so much easier and cleaner to have, like, bandits fall on Naboth as he's, you know, traveling on some lonely road? Why go through all this trouble to put together, basically, a conspiracy involving, I don't know, at least a dozen people? And the reason is because of the land. Even if Naboth should suddenly, mysteriously die under suspicious circumstances on some lonely road, the land would go to his sons. Even if his sons should also die, the land would go to his family. That's how the inheritance laws work. The only way that Jezebel can legally seize the land is that Naboth has to be found guilty of a capital crime specifically the crime of blasphemy, 
which is speaking ill against God. And if Naboth is convicted of blasphemy, then not only would he be put to death, but this is very important, he would be excommunicated, his family would be cut off from Israel, and they would forfeit their right to the land. Because again, the land is their connection to God and to the covenants of Israel. And so, this is very important, there had to be a legal process. This had to be done through the courts. So what happens next is that Jezebel writes letters, she forges letters in Ahab's name, she instructs the tribal leaders, the elders, to find two worthless men, right? These are two liars, okay? And then they are to accuse Naboth of cursing God and cursing the king. Now, why two men? Because in Deuteronomy 17, you need two eyewitnesses to establish someone's guilt. And in the text, this goes by really fast, but you need to understand that what basically happens is they conduct a full-on criminal trial. The evidence is laid out, the witnesses are, are called forth, and according to the Torah, for a capital trial, right, in which the death penalty is being considered, the Bible requires that the trial be conducted no less than two days. So there's no rush to judgment. So you have to understand what an ordeal this must have been. The whole community would have been transfixed by this. And then at the end of the trial, Naboth is found guilty. And according to Leviticus chapter 24, the penalty for blasphemy is death. And so he's taken outside the city, and then as prescribed by the law, he is stoned to death. That's the story. Couple of observations. Number one, we see here the corruptibility of the courts. I want you to listen to me. Human courts of justice are fallible. They are subject to corruption. The rules that a court follows are good, and this court, Naboth's court, would have had to follow the the rules of a fair trial as laid out in the Old Testament, which are excellent. They are, in fact, the basis of the American justice system. The rules are designed to protect the innocent and the falsely accused, But rules fail because they require fallible human beings to keep them. People who are capable, who are subject to personal bias, to um, the dynamics of groupthink, and sometimes even corruption. And we have seen this throughout human history. The legal courts so often protect the rich and the well-connected, and then they oppress the poor and the weak. Um, One of the books that uh, really impacted me was, uh, I read a book called Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. Brian Stevenson is a a lawyer based in Montgomery, um, Montgomery, Alabama, and he has worked his entire life to secure the release of those who have been wrongfully convicted. He's worked hand-in-hand with the Innocence Project. And in his book, he basically tells you 
story after story of people, you know, because of their, their impoverished circumstances, because of the color of their skin, you know, because of, you know, various factors, they're innocent, but they're railroaded through the, the justice system and then they're imprisoned. And then he has this chilling quote in the book, which I'll never forget. He says, in the United States, we have a system of justice that treats you better if you are rich and guilty than if you, than if you are poor and innocent. And the Bible recognizes that. The Bible acknowledges that miscarriages of justice happen. And in this story, a, a legal court did not protect Naboth. It was actually the very mechanism of his murder. This is the human condition. And we need to look at it full in the face. Secondly, so first, the corruptibility of the court. Secondly, we see here the collective nature of evil. Jezebel could not have done this on her own. At any point, at any point, somebody could have stood up and said, this is not right. It, evil on this scale requires the participation of many people. And you might say, if somebody does, if somebody sticks their neck out, all they're going to do is get themselves killed. Yeah? So that's what happened. Everyone went along with the flow. Everyone went along with the plan. And maybe they told themselves, hey, I'm just following orders. I'm not the one actually killing Naboth. I just have this little part to play. But what happened is, Naboth was murdered because everyone played their part. Each individual in this conspiracy could have told themselves, I don't want Naboth to die. But in the end, everyone collectively participated in the murder of Naboth so that no one can say they did not have a hand in it. Do you understand? This was not a solitary killing. Naboth did not die because of some assassin's bullet. This was a lynching. The whole community was involved in varying degrees. Third, I want you to understand that not only did Naboth lose his life, but he also lost his good name. It would be one thing if Naboth was murdered on the streets and then thieves stole his land. And then do you know what happened? The whole community would be outraged and his family would be surrounded with sympathy and love. But do you know what Naboth's final moments were like? His friends his neighbors that he had lived, he has grown up with all of his life, they turned their back against him. And instead of sympathy, he saw faces filled with hatred and anger. And then his family became outcasts, and they lost everything. There is no greater evil than this. Not only was evil done to Naboth, 
but it was called good. It was sanctioned by the courts. And not only was a good man killed, but in the end, he was called evil. You have to understand that at the end of his life, he was covered in shame. He was rejected by the community. Because you have to understand that in the Old Testament, stoning is a communal death sentence. Everyone picked up a stone. Everyone participated in his death. That's how the sentence works. So that Ahab could have his vegetable garden. It is bone chilling. Number four, I want you to see here that passivity does not absolve you of guilt. At the end of the story, Elijah comes to Ahab, and in verse 19 he says, Thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? He says, have you killed? What does that mean? It means that even though Ahab did not actively take part in Naboth's death, he didn't even know the specifics, he is just as guilty as Jezebel because he turned a blind eye. Ahab didn't know, but he didn't want to know. When Jezebel told uh, Ahab, Naboth was convicted of blasphemy and the land is now yours, Ahab should have said to himself, hmm, that story doesn't seem right. Did you say it was Naboth? Naboth, the man who told me, the Lord forbid that I should give you the land of mine, that Naboth, he blasphemed God? No, that, that makes no sense at all. Instead of sort of shrugging his shoulders and saying, oh well, it was Ahab's responsibility to investigate, to ask probing questions, to get to the bottom of what happened. But instead, because he was indifferent, because he didn't care, because he wasn't interested in the truth, Ahab is condemned to judgment and death for this terrible sin. And maybe Ahab could say, but I didn't do anything. No, Ahab, you are guilty. I want you to know that this is a challenging word for all of us. The Bible says that it is not enough simply to abstain from evil. It's not enough to sort of just passively walk by and not see anything. But the Bible commands us to actively pursue justice, mercy, and truth. Listen to Proverbs 31, verses 8 through 9. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Or listen to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Imago Dei Church, I want you to listen to me. It is not enough simply to avoid evil, but you must actively pursue the good 
to be righteous before God. So that leads me to the second point. We're going to look at the justice of God and then we're going to look at the mercy of God. The resolution of the story, I think, is truly profound. And in the resolution, I want you to see there's this tension between the justice of God on the one hand and then his mercy on the, on the other. So let's take a look at this in turn. Number one, the longing for justice. In verse 16, at the end, Naboth is dead. Ahab takes possession of his land. And it seems like, at the end of verse 16, they have gotten away with it. And I want you to see here that this is the history of the world in miniature. The poor and the innocent are crushed, the wicked prosper and flourish. Does it not make your blood boil? Is there no justice? If you have never felt the force of this question, then either you have lived a very short life or a very sheltered life. Because where is God in all of this? Where is God? And in verses 1 through 16, God is seemingly absent. There is no mention of God except on the lips of Naboth, and he's killed for it. All we see in verses 1 through 16 is human beings scheming and manipulating. But in verse 17, the story abruptly changes. And then suddenly, God is everywhere. Most of the verses are literally direct quotations of God's words. Thus saith the Lord, thunders Elijah the prophet. And what we learn here is that the happiness of the wicked is temporary. In the end, all lies will be exposed. All evil works will be overturned. And the righteous will be vindicated. The righteous will shine like the stars forever. It seemed like Ahab and Jezebel had gotten away with it. But what this story shows us is that God sees every hidden evil. Every secret conspiracy is naked before him. No one has to report to God. But every every single act of injustice, God takes notice. Listen to uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse, 10, f- verse 13. Listen to this. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I want you to know that this gives enormous comfort to the afflicted. That God will avenge. Proverbs twenty twenty two says this, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord, for he will deliver you. The wicked will not prosper. There will be a final judgment. So that's the first part. The justice of God, it's coming. It is inescapable. But then secondly, we see the mercy of God. In verse 21, God pronounces judgment on Ahab. He says, Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. 
I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free. And so the judgment is this. Ahab will be destroyed, Jezebel too, and this, and the royal house will come to this ignominious end, you know, body parts strewn everywhere. That's the judgment. And then this is where the story takes a surprising turn. Ahab hears Elijah's prophecy of doom, and in verse 27 it says, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth, he fasted, and he went about dejectedly. Now, it is so easy (laughs) to be very cynical about this and say, these are crocodile tears. This is a fake repent. Don't fall for it, God, right? He's not really sorry. But in verse 29, God affirms Ahab's repentance. He says he has truly humbled himself. He has truly repented. And then in response, God relents. The judgment is delayed, and instead the judgment will fall on his son. Now, what do we make of this story? Let me um, pose a couple of questions. Number one, if Ahab has truly repented, then why doesn't God fully relent? Why does the judgment still fall on his son? Here's the answer. Because Ahab has repented, the judgment is delayed, but it is not canceled, and it depends on what Ahab will do in the future. And you will see that in the very next chapter, chapter 22, Ahab does not continue in his repentance. He falls back, he reverts to his old ways of idolatry, he shows contempt for the word of God, and for that, he dies in battle. We're going to look at that in the next sermon. He dies in battle. Dogs indeed lick up his blood in accordance with the prophecy. And so what we learn here is that this prophecy against Ahab in verse 21 was always contingent. It was always contingent. Even the prophecy against his son is contingent because the way that prophecies of judgment work in the Old Testament listen to me, is that prophecy, prophecies of doom does not mean it has to happen, but only that it will happen if there's no change. Okay, so let me say that again. Prophecies of doom in the Old Testament does not mean it has to happen, but only that it will happen if there's no change. In other words, human beings have agency, and therefore prophecies of doom are warnings. And in First Kings, Ahab is warned three separate times. He is warned in chapter 20. He's warned here again in chapter 21. He will be warned for a final time in chapter 22. Even his son, King Ahaziah, is himself warned for his idolatry and sins in Second Kings chapter 1. And then, and only then, does judgment fall on the house of Ahab. And so what's the point? Here's the point. This shows us that the wrath and the judgment of God can be turned aside so that even a partial repentance, which is what Ahab gave, gave, even a partial repentance leads to a partial relenting.
Do you know why? Psalm 145, verse 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Even someone as wicked as Ahab, and remember, he is the worst of the worst. There is no one more wicked than Ahab. Even a sinner like Ahab can find forgiveness in God. Because salvation is by grace. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved. By faith, this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how long you've been running away from God. If you repent, if you give your life to Christ, God will surely save you from your sins. No one is beyond the grace of God, not even Ahab. Isn't that marvelous? That leads me to the final point, the ultimate innocent sufferer. So, this leads to a problem. It's a big problem, and some of you immediately recognize it, which is, how can these two things go together? It's a contradiction. How can God say, vengeance is mine, I will repay, Deuteronomy 32-35, and at the same time, say, I will forgive their iniquities, I will remember their sins no more, Jeremiah 31-34. How can these two, ver- these two verses coexist in the Bible? The story is incoherent. It doesn't make any sense. What sort of ending is this? Until you realize that the key to the story is Naboth. You see, Naboth is not just a helpless victim, but he fulfills a typecast in the Bible of an innocent sufferer. And his suffering points forward to the ultimate innocent sufferer in the Bible. Hundreds of years later, Jesus of Nazareth was arrested on trumped-up charges. And then he was put to trial. And then he was falsely accused by two eyewitnesses. Listen to the way Matthew 26, 59-61 puts it. Listen. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward, right? Two eyewitnesses to fulfill Deuteronomy 17, And they said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And then if you read the account of the trial, it's very interesting. Jesus does not respond to any of these charges. He remains silent. And it's really interesting that in our story, 1 Kings 21, the only time you hear Naboth speak is in the beginning. But during the trial, he never, you never hear Naboth speak. Now, you know, probably... Naboth spoke up in his defense, but in the story, he doesn't say a word. This was to fulfill Isaiah 53, verse 7. Listen to this. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its hearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You see, he was foreshadowing the ultimate future innocent sufferer. And then finally, in Jesus' trial, the high priest reaches a point of just intense frustration, and he directly asks Jesus, 
Are you the Messiah? And Jesus at last speaks, and he quotes Daniel 7. He says, You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. And in Mark 14, 63-64, says this, And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. That's what they say. You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And so Jesus is sentenced to death. And then the the Pharisees, the, the, the Sanhedrin, hand him over to the Romans because the Romans were the only ones with the proper authority to execute criminals. And the custom of the Romans was to execute criminals not by stoning, but by crucifixion. And so they take Jesus outside the city to Golgotha, and they crucified him as a criminal. Some of you might be saying, this is all very interesting. I see there's a lot of parallels between Naboth and Jesus, but what does it all mean? Here's what it means. Naboth is a type, but he's not the final reality. See, in the end, is Naboth perfectly a righteous man? Is he completely without sin? And the answer, of course, is, of course not. He's a man just like you and I. He was a faithful Israelite. He died unjustly. But in the end, he is a sinner like you and me, and therefore, he deserves death. Not that death, but death as the penalty of sin. But Jesus, he is the perfect spotless lamb. He is the only truly righteous man who has ever lived, who perfectly kept God's law in every way, and then he willingly, he willingly became a victim of injustice and false accusation. He did this willingly. Why? This is what Paul explains in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made him, that's Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul says that Jesus was made to be sin. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that Jesus was actually a sinner. right? Paul says he knew no sin. He didn't do any sin, but he took the place of a sinner. See, you and I, we are sinners. And we deserve to be put on trial. You know, the Bible says, actually, at the end of history, there will be a judgment day. Do you know what that means? It means there will be a trial. And it will be an absolutely fair trial. And all the evidence will be laid out. And the verdict will be guilty. We all deserve death. But here is the salvation of God. Jesus stands in our place. He receives the verdict that you and I deserve. He was cast out. He died a shameful death so that, as, as Paul says, we might become the righteousness of God, so that we might be received into his kingdom, we might have peace and joy forevermore. Listen to me. In the end, there will be perfect justice. This is the promise of God. And if you give your life to Christ, if you repent and turn to him, 
then the, then your judgment has already fallen on Christ on the cross. But if you reject Christ, what you are saying is, I will stand on my own record. That's what you're saying. I will stand on my own record. And then at the end of history, you will go to trial. And it will be an absolutely perfect, fair trial. No bias, no corruption. All the evidence will be laid out. Every careless, insensitive word that you have ever spoken. Every act of passive indifference to the suffering of others when you were in a position to intervene. Every lie and deception and half-truth. Every selfish thought and lustful look will be judged in accordance with God's perfect law. Are you ready for that? Turn to Christ. He's the only Savior. He's the only one who died for your sins because He loves you. Let's pray. Almighty God, on every page of Scripture, we see a reflection of our sins. We see this long, sordid history of injustice and willful indifference to suffering. And we see not just our collective guilt, we see our individual sins. Who will save us from this body of sin and death? Thanks be to God for our Savior Jesus Christ, for his perfect sinless life and his willing suffering as an innocent lamb. In his name we pray. Amen.